Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast, kindly sponsored by IMO, a leading technology-led residential real estate platform designed to create quality portfolios of existing single-family rental housing at speed and scale. Find out more at imo.capital. And now, on with the podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Fletcher, who is the Managing Director of Avira, which is a partnership of four housing associations in the East of England, which collectively own and manage over 100,000 homes. And she's also the chair of Swarthen Prior <laughs> Community Land Trust, which is developing a groundbreaking village-wide renewable energy supply. And she's a fellow land economist. So welcome to the podcast, Emma, and thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. So we recently reconnected at a real estate event where the discussion ranged from safety and quality to sustainability of housing in the UK. And whilst many of the other attendees also had very senior roles in real estate, they were kind of missing, or at least not mentioning, that kind of more tactical understanding of what it's like on the ground, in particular in development. So I wanted to start by focusing on that. I wondered if you could run me through what the biggest challenges you face as a developer today in the current climate are, and how they impact your and your team's day-to-day experience. Well, I think the honest truth is there are so many things impacting on development. There are things that the very localist of levels, the interaction with general members of the public and parish councils, because we've been told as a population they want to believe in and trust in localism. So people feel empowered at the lowest level in the sort of hierarchy of governance. And then you get in the local authorities with all of the different pressures they have on them and funding cuts. And then you get the bigger governance from above with all these grand ideas and plans for net zero that are pushing policies through building control and all different acts that are coming forward. And I think one of the drives really is for more housing quicker with greater quality and greater investment in communities. And actually, that sounds so simple when you put it up from above, but unpicking that is so complex in terms of how you go forward. When I first started out in development, the local plan was a slim A-line A4 folder. You could put in an outline application with a red edge. And actually, landowners put their own land in quite simply in to be suggested for development. The reality is now, if you want to even start to get your land ready for development, landowners quite often pass their land over to developers years in advance of the local plan even coming out because of all the technical reports that you need to do. They just cannot afford to invest that much money. So as soon as that happens, the stakes are high in development. It's like Russian roulette. And, you know, you've upped the ante before you've even started. So you've got fixed land prices years before the land has even possibly got an allocation or a planning permission. There's so much money that has gone out. And therefore, or the pressure by the time you actually get to build a home, the pressures, the amount of effort, the work, the money, the policies, all those things, by the time you physically brick in the ground is huge. So it's highly complex, I think, is the honest answer. And at the end of the day, money is king. And that drives a lot of the behaviours that we see in our world. Interesting. Okay. And I know from like personal experience how tough development can be really at any time. I think even more so because of that increased complexity that you've just mentioned. And 
I think on a personal level in real estate generally and in development in particular, as we talked about before the recording started, like the gender imbalance, that like general total lack of diversity is extremely obvious <laughs> in property <laughs> development. And it's very common to be like the only woman in a room or on a site, but that's not the only way to measure diversity. But on a positive note, you clearly had a really thriving career in this space. So I wondered what you would say to other women considering their careers or anyone with any kind of feeling of not being a 30 to 60 year old white man. Like, is development a good idea for different people and why? I cannot stress enough the need in construction for diversity. I have been a massive champion for more women into construction. I think especially those who don't know what to do, there's a space for everybody. I think for those wanting to return from work or have a career change, construction is a fantastic place and we desperately need people who can add value. And when I mean add value, People won't realise they have these skills because I certainly often undervalue my skills. But just think outside the box who say, no, that isn't acceptable. Why would you do it like that? Question things. Make people stick to the rules, adhere to principles and actually solve the problems and unpick. You know, people get stuck in their ways. And I think you're spot on with the construction industry in describing how it's been run. It's been run by the same types of people for too long. And I think, therefore, the ways have stuck. And I think generationally, I love working with, on the whole, the 60 plus generation in the construction industry, who by default are retiring, but they have standards, they have commitment, they have work ethic. And that is really missing from lower generations of people on site and getting worse. Exactly at the time when we're meant to be improving quality, improving safety, not taking shortcuts and actually delivering more homes. So I think there should be a massive call to arms to get people in who want to actually challenge the norm, do things differently. And at the end of the day, maybe do things that they haven't done before, but really put their heart and soul into delivering. And the satisfaction you get from doing that is so huge. So for me, it's been a bit of a journey of discovery, but I love doing things that haven't been done before. I love doing things that maybe others before me have tried and failed. That to me gets me up in the morning and makes me want to go to work. And fundamentally, construction is a social industry and the property industry is a social industry. And I see it like a rugby team. There's place and space for everybody. But, you know, you can be a real team in this world, but you may not think, you know, sweeping generality. Footballers tend to look quite the same, quite the same physique. Rugby teams, male or female, tend to have a variety of everybody. And I think that's how I see property and construction that, you know, you may think that your face might not fit, but I tell you what, it jolly well does. It's open to everyone. Oh, lovely positive note. And actually, I just want to pick up on one thing you said about the generational shift, because that's a really interesting one, is like ultimately the future diversity of the construction industry is entirely dependent on who decides to join it, right? And how they're treated. And I guess on the standards shift, I'm really interested by what, by what you said about those standards, because when... like. I only know from personal experience, like when I joined the workforce, I got my standards from my first employer. I didn't have them when I left university. And I think like 10 or 12 or however many, let's not discuss how long it was. 
Um, it's like, less than me, so you don't need to be embarrassed. <laughs> it was the time it was since I started. Like they've changed and I've come across different people who have different sets of standards from different companies. Some of them are like very strict and some of them are much more relaxed, I would say. And I would say that we often get them from our employer. So I wonder if there's also an element of responsibility on that older generation to be training people to have those standards rather than just expecting them to have it naturally. I think there really is. And if recent stats are to be believed, one of the biggest issues we've got as a whole country is that we've seen a massive drop off of mainly males in the workforce from 55. So in a post-COVID world, many have decided to take a final lump sum out of their pension and actually step out of the workforce because construction isn't easy. It isn't easy. It's tough hours. It plays for different people in different ways. And therefore, actually, how do we maintain that skill set and pass it on? In an era where we're all on Zoom and Teams and all those other things, yes, site is on site, but there's still a lot of other functions like technical coordination that, you know, is being run from remote locations. And you're totally right. How do we pass that skill set on and that work ethic? I think it's really challenging. Mm, Interesting. Okay. So moving on, one of the things you mark yourself out with at Avira is focusing on developing communities rather than just building homes. And I wondered how you actually do this and what you've learned around developing communities. So we're obviously owned by four housing associations, but we are a private developer, unashamedly so. But the reason why the four came together was to try and take on the PLCs. So they didn't have to bid against hundreds of housing associations for the Section 106 and that actually they could make sensible decisions together. We have a target of doing on policy affordable and top up that if the finances permit. So from the very start, one of them, if not two of them, the housing associations have actually got stock that they will be holding on site. So to have that base load invested from the very beginning of a development is really important. Someone who is going to have a long term interest in the site and actually own homes, be it rented or shared ownership on the project. So it's a sort of a driving ethos and force from the very beginning. But what we've tried to do is actually refer to everybody as residents. We have communications that go out from us ever to everybody. If we're telling them about the tarmacking on the road, we don't do separate emails. It goes out to every resident, be it private ownership, shared ownership or rented. So it's basically we go out to everybody at the same time. In terms of community, we've spent a lot of time investing in community. We've bought the community a gazebo. And we've also invested in things like end of summer parties. And we've really tried to engage with people. Before we actually tarmac the road, we sent everybody out a box of uh, rocky road with a little note inside just to remind you that your road next week is getting less rocky. And just little fun things. I do believe that there should be an element of fun in everything. And, you know, that it said them, do you have any ideas? Giving some money back. Sort of building people on the green. So they've, yes, they've waved good hello to their neighbour, but did they know their name? Did they know which child? was belong to you know that type of networking and I think green spaces are really important for that we've planted a community tree on one of our developments and the idea is it grows with the community it's a fir tree so they can put lights on it at Christmas but you know when it's the World Cup they can decorate it all those sort of things I think are really important to communities and moving forwards that's a, like really really lovely and very very sweet I think there's a lot of people who've learned a lot 
<laughs> and also bulbs. This sounds really bad, but bulbs. And you think bulbs, but on new developments, no one plants daffodils or tulips in open spaces. So one of the things we bought a ton of bulbs, dumped them on the green space, and the community then planted them over October half term. And you know what? It was delightful. Come the spring, it was fantastic. And there's nothing like a little bit of yellow daffodil popping through that makes everybody feel happy. And I think that type of thing is really important. Really, really nice. Okay. Good tips there. So <laughs> moving on to, because we've got so much to discuss, moving on to Swaff and Prior, which I really struggled to say earlier. Um, this is a really exciting project, creating 100% renewable heat network for the village and reliant on air source and ground source heat pumps and electric boiler backup, if I'm correct. Tell me more about the project, its aims and how you're actually doing it. Okay, so not happening to be blessed with loads of uh, family money. I've always believed that I should give myself as a volunteer in order to better the communities in which I actually live. You know, that's been from running street parties to, I don't know, running events at Village Hall or whatever it happens to be. And so using the, the day hat, I decided to set up a community land trust about seven years ago. We built eight homes to the village, some bungalows and stuff. And after a couple of years, thought, we've got this company, what else do we do with it? And I hate being on oil. I hate paying money for oil. I hate the fluctuations in price for oil. And I thought, you know what? The rest of the village surely must feel the same. So I just happened to have a chance conversation with somebody who said, well, weirdly, 10 years ago, I worked for a Danish company and we were working to bring uh, district heating to the UK, but never really took off. Anyhow, roll the clock forward. Mike became one of our community land trust directors. We've done grant rounds, etc. We found the county council. I worked out there in some land in the village. I mean, a team of hundreds of people, some brilliant minds, engineers, communications experts. All these people have come together thanks to some huge amounts of and rounds of funding from government, which we're very grateful for. And you know what? we've delivered on site. We've got planning. We've got through all these rounds. The energy centre is currently being built and it's an amazing project. So fundamentally, the project is about pumping 73 degree water around the village to take 73 degree water to the home, guaranteed, and everybody can remove their oil tanks, their oil boilers and replace it with a small little on-the-wall combi boiler type size unit. It's called a heat interface unit. And you can run your hot water and your central heating off this centralised system. It's not rocket science. It's not reinventing wheel. These systems are so common in Denmark and Sweden and northern Germany. But it is apparently unique currently to the UK in terms of a rural retrofit project. We never set out to be that, but we apparently we are. It's 108 boreholes, 200 metres deep, and it's an industrial air source brought over from Germany, and it's fed by a private wire to a solar farm also owned by the county council. And there are four backup, effectively electric boilers, but think of them as, uh, what they call them? I can't think. But anyhow, water storage effectively is the backup boiler system. Immersion heaters, there we go, immersion heaters. And then this basically is the centralised centre, like the heart, and then we have the pipes like hearts and arteries running through the village, bringing hot water to their home. And it is, yeah, it's fossil free. And yeah, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of the team. We go live in about a month and a half. So God willing, it will work. My husband said we'll have to move village if it doesn't. And also <laughs> it's a bit late for us because we've just taken the oil tank out because we're doing that because <laughs> it's in the summer. So it better blinking work now. But anyhow, yeah. It's, it's well, really we awesome. interested in making it work now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But four other villages are already on this journey. They've been through their first round of funding 
And that gives me great delight that other people are seeing this project and then delivering far faster, far quicker and far more agile because they've got something to look at and show people than the struggles possibly we had. And so, yeah, really happy. And yeah, come and have a look. <laughs> oh, I'd be delighted to. Yeah, we'll talk that out after. No, I think that'll be amazing. Really well done. And like you said, even if it's not unique in the world, to do something like that in the UK is really incredible. And I wonder if there's anything that others can learn about moving to renewable energy from your experience and the challenges <laughs> you faced over that period of time with Swap and Prior Community Trust and the Cambridge Shire County Council on that project. So I think what's become clear is that you do need public sector and private partnership. And in the public sector, this in the form of the county council and the district council for planning. But in the private sector, I'm talking about us, the community on the other side of the fence. And I guess it took about a year to really grow that trust between us. But we are now operating as this weird virtual team. We've used contractors off the county's framework who are trusted And also we've had the trust of the councillors to keep investing in the project to take this forward and cross-party support. So I think that's really, really important is making those partnerships. And that could vary wherever you are in the country if you want to take those forwards. It's finding the right partners at the right time. It's following the money, the grant money when it comes available. But I'm a great believer that actually the way we're going to change the country is by community change. This has taught me so much about resilience personally and also standing up for what is right and being determined to carry on. And I think also it's about actually showing people the right path and doing things to make things easier. So trying to make things easier. So there's no barriers to entry for anybody in our village. No one pays up front. The project holds the costs over the long term. So that makes it easier for people to sign up and join. So the human psychology part of change is really important as well. And we've learned a lot. And I don't think government have really explained to people how much this is going to cost people personally. I know, for example, Cambridge City Council have allocated approximately £55,000 per affordable home to do the work to take their properties up to net zero and be under no doubt private owners and landlords are going to have to spend a lot of money to upgrade their properties. And so this is the Danish model, which is effectively, we've now got a centralised heating scheme. Back in the 70s, they went to wood chip and they're now going to industrial air source. And that's the beauty of a project like this on a community scale level be it privately or community owned, uh, this is owned by the county council, run for us, the community, is that you change together. So we don't have to go rip up the roads again. We don't have to rip people's houses up again. You just change the heart. The arteries and the veins are still in there, their 60-year lifespan. So whatever the future brings, be it small-scale nuclear nuclear fusion or some sort of other technology, we just have to go into the energy centre hut and change it. So I think that is making it easy for people to transition is really important. Amazing. Gosh, it sounds like a really, really incredible project. I would love to see it. Um, and really, honestly, well done. And if any listeners want to find out more about you or Avira or the Swaff and Prior Community Land Trust, um, which I can never say, or just to get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? 
So I'm a great believer the strength of myself is my network of people. As I said earlier, it takes a lot of people to deliver in any of these projects. And lots of people have given their time freely to me. And by default, unless you're a total time waster, I will happily give my time freely back to you. And I do so willingly to lots of different groups. So the best way to find me is probably LinkedIn. Uh, Emma Fletcher, Cambridge. And there are websites available for the Swaffham Prior Heating Scheme on the County Council website. And yeah, just Google me. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. And thanks to Imo for sponsoring this episode. Email hello at imo.capital for more information. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast. Bye for now.